Well, please remain standing as we turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, it is a long psalm. We'll read it in parts this morning. Uh, let's start with verses 1 through 18. Uh, if you're using uh, one of the church's Bibles, that starts on page 495. But seeing as how we're outside, you probably all brought your own. Psalm 89. Beloved saints, one thing we're going to see in this psalm over and over is the word forever, uh, that God's word abides forever and it never fails. And that is indeed our reminder as we now listen to God's word. It is perfect, it is eternal, and it never fails. Uh, Let us give our attention to the reading of it. A Maskell of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging sea when its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and exult in your righteousness. I'm sorry, and in your righteousness are exalted, for you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. That ends the reading of God's word at this time. Let us pray that he would be with us and minister to us uh, through it. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears and our doubts. Flood this darkness with the light of your grace and your peace. Open our minds to your truth. Grant us hope. Grant us faith. Increase our understanding and allow us to receive you in your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scriptures. And may your spirit be with us as we read and as we hear. May your spirit grant that we would delight in all we encounter in your word. Amen. You may be seated.
I can imagine uh, the journal entries of one of the disciples on the last week of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry might go something like this. Sunday. Dear diary, what a day. This was great. We came into Jerusalem and the people went wild. They were throwing palm branches at the master's feet. There was singing. There was shouting. He even rode in on a donkey like Zechariah said he would. This is it. The Messiah is here. David's throne will be restored. Life is good. Monday. The master cleared the temple again. I think some leaders are pretty upset. But after yesterday, who would dare to challenge him? Tuesday. Yesterday the temple. Today the master cursed a fig tree. I think the stress is getting to him. The leaders tried to ambush him, but like I predicted, they failed. Something's going on with Judas. He's acting strange. Wednesday. Today was calm. Maybe things are finally settling down. I can't wait to see what the future holds. Thursday. What in the world is going on? The master was arrested. Peter tried to say something nice and got rebuked. Judas is working with the enemy. I'm starting to worry. Friday. They did it. They crucified him. The master's gone. He's dead. Saturday morning. What now? Everything we hoped, everything we dared to believe, was it all for nothing? Was it a hoax? Am I the biggest fool the world has ever known? How could he let this happen? He promised so much, and we believed him. We gave him our hearts. We, we gave him our trust. We thought this was it. I'm so angry, and I wish he was here so I could tell him how angry I am and how much I miss him. What would you say to those disciples on Saturday morning? What did they need? What would you need on that Saturday morning? We all have our Saturday mornings when our worlds come crashing down, when everything seems lost. When we don't understand what's going on, when we think that, that God has failed us, that he hasn't kept his word, when you're tempted to give up hope, to throw in the towel. We all have our Sunday mornings. And when we do, what do we need? Where can we find comfort? Where can we find hope? I think Psalm 89 was written for Sunday, or sorry, for Saturday mornings. I think it's a psalm for Saturday mornings like that. It deals with 
great disappointment. It deals with confusion. It's honest. And it contains hope. It will show us that, that walking by faith means understanding that things will often appear to be the exact opposite of what they really are. Walking by faith means understanding that things will often appear to be the exact opposite of what they really are. Much of the psalm rehearses the promises that God had made to, to King David, uh, his descendants, and to the people of Israel. And so that's where I want to start. We're going to look at those promises made to David and the people of Israel. And then we're going to turn and look at, at the circumstances that they're enduring, that they're facing, and how it made things appear that God's promises to David and the people had failed. And then finally, I want to spend some time at the end asking how we live in a world where appearances can be deceiving. So that's really what we want to do. Look at those promises. Look at how they appear to have failed and ask how that helps us live in a world where appearances can be uh, deceiving. Verses 5 through 18, um, we've read those, are, are given to acknowledging God's power and his authority. And, and first, the psalmist acknowledges that, that God is sovereign over the angels in heaven. These are the holy ones that the psalm is talking about. And what he's saying is, as great as the angels are, as scary as, in, 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 as intimidating as the angels are. Usually when people in the Bible come face to face with angels, they, they fall down in fear and terror. And the psalmist is saying, as scary as they are, as great as they are, as intimidating as they are, God is greater, far greater than the angels. In fact, the angels fear him. There is none like him. And then God looks at, I'm sorry, then the psalmist looks at God's power over nature. Uh, the waves and the seas that rage, they obey him. That was demonstrated when he crushed Rahab, that is Egypt, in the Red Sea. God commanded the sea and it parted for his people. He commanded the sea and it crushed the enemy. And so that means that he is stronger than any of Israel's enemies. He is sovereign over heaven. He is sovereign over earth, verses 11 and 12. There is, verse 13, none more powerful than he. And what's the point of rehearsing God's power over the angels and over creation and over the enemies? That's what verses 14 through 18 are all about. God's power over all of these things that mean that those who belong to God are always on the winning side. They are blessed, verse 15. He is their strength, verse 17. He is their shield and he is their protector. It's simple math. If no one can conquer God, then no one can conquer those whom he protects. And so being his people is a place of security and blessing or at least it should be. Over the years, I've come to be uh, a little nervous or wary or anxious around people who are too profuse with their compliments and flattery. Usually when people compliment me, there's an ulterior motive. One is uh, either there's a rebuke coming 
or worse than rebuke, a favor, like they're going to ask me to serve on a committee that no one else wants to serve on. In our psalm, it's a rebuke that's coming. Because the psalmist is not happy with God. And this rehearsal of his power over the angels and over creation and over the enemies is setting up a complaint. But before he gets to that, he has one more thing to rehearse, and that's, that's God's promises to David, the great king of Israel's glory days. And, and that's what we read in verses 19 through 17. So let's read that. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted a help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from my people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy, holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand will be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep, from, uh, keep for him forever." And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with the stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. These verses are looking back to when God came to David in 2 Samuel 7. David uh, said he wanted to build a temple for the Lord, a permanent house for God to dwell in. But David's calling it uh, had largely been his military service. His reign as a king had been marked by many battles and military campaigns where he secured the borders of Israel and, and made the people safe from their enemies, the Philistines and, and people like that. And that was good and that was important, but, but God didn't want a king known for so much bloodshed to be the one to build the house of peace. And so God appeared to David and said, don't worry, your son will build my temple. It's, it's not your calling. That's not what I've set you aside for. But more importantly, God promised to David that, that his throne would, would never be taken from his family. That one of his children would always have a place on the throne. 
And this promise was unconditional. Look at verses 30 through 33. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I'll punish them with the rod and and stripes, but I will not remove from David my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. God's saying, David, your family's possession of the throne does not depend upon how good they are on their obedience. Yes, disobedience will result in discipline, but it will not result in me abandoning them. And then he sealed it with an oath. He says, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. That's the promise that that God made to his servant David. And he didn't leave himself any, any loopholes, any ways out. It was an unbreakable promise. And this was the promise to David and his children after him. And and this is what they had read in scriptures. This is what they had heard. This is what they had set their hopes on. This was their comfort for the future. It was what shaped their expectations. And it didn't seem to fit with what they saw going on around them. Let's read verses 38 through 45. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made him, you have made a splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. When the psalm is written, David's son, his descendant, is not on the throne. He is not exalted. And the exact setting of the psalm is is not totally clear. We know it's written by Ethan the Ezraite, who lived in the days of Solomon. And so it may refer to something that happened as early as the days of Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son. During his reign, uh, a few things happened that could explain the psalm. Uh, One was that because of his pride and arrogance, God took ten of the tribes from him and gave them to uh, a king who was not a descendant of David, Jeroboam, in the north. Uh, It could refer to when Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up and plundered uh, uh, Rehoboam. Ultimately, the throne was not taken from David's family in either situation, but it definitely was not what people were expecting, especially so soon after David's lifetime. And yet, if you, if you know the history of Israel, you know that, that things got a lot worse from there. 
During the exile, when the, uh, when the uh, Israelites were captured by the Babylonians, David's descendant, we heard about this in, in Jeremiah, was, was actually put in prison in Babylon for, for decades. After the exile, the throne of David wasn't ever really restored. Genealogies were kept so that, that they would know who had a rightful claim on the throne when the time came. But, but one of the questions they constantly had to wrestle with was, have the promises of God failed? The, this section of the Psalms, the Psalms are arranged thematically, and this section of the Psalms that we've been looking at, the 80s, deal a lot with the questions and the struggles that God's people dealt with during and just after the exile. And it may be that, that this Psalm had been written centuries before in the days of Rehoboam, but it's placed with these other Psalms in the exile because these questions are the exact same. The confusion is the same. What had happened to Rehoboam is what they're feeling now during the exile. And so they're using this this older psalm to express their concern and their disappointment in the face of slavery to Babylon. And they're looking around and they're saying, so where's the king? God promised that discipline would come, but but that his promise would not be revoked to David and his descendants. God promised that his kingdom would be forever led by one of David's descendants. But all we see is failure, defeat, and enslavement. And if God is greater than the angels, if God is greater than the seas, God is greater than any earthly enemy, then there's only one explanation for the reason why we're suffering right now. It's because God has allowed it. So they say in verse 39 that he's abandoned them. Verse 38, he's rejected them. Verse 42, that he's actually exalted their enemies. And they're left wondering, What now? Everything we hoped for, everything we dared to believe, was it it all for nothing? Was it all a hoax? Are we the biggest fools the world has ever known? How, How could God let this happen? He promised so much. And we dared to believe him, to to give him our hearts, to give him our trust. We thought this was it. And we're so angry. And we wish he was right here so that we could tell him how angry we are. And how sorry we are for our sin. Let's read the last several verses. Verses 46 through 52. How long, O Lord... Will you hide your face forever? How long will your wrath burn like a fire? Remember how short my time is. 
For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What can man live and never see? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. All they're left with are questions. Is this it? There's not much time left. Will you, will you hide forever? Death is, is coming soon, and then what? Who can deliver from the grave? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, your faithfulness by which you swore to your servant David? You can hear it, can't you? The promise and the reality, they don't match. So, Lord, what happened? How did we get here? Did we place our trust in the wrong person? Where do we go from here? Do we keep on hoping and trusting? Can God restore things? Can he still make good on his promises? Those are the questions that gnaw at us when everything goes sideways. Those are the Saturday morning questions when all your hopes and dreams and your expectations lie silent in the grave. And it's the answers to those questions that really matter in life. The real question is what do you trust? Your assessment or God's word? Your senses or his promise? The great struggle in the Christian life is to move from God, your way makes sense to me, so I will follow you. From there to God, I trust you more than I trust myself and I will follow you wherever. Often when we say, I trust you, what we really mean is, you agree with me, and so we can walk together for a while. That's not faith. Not really. That's walking by faith, by by what we see, by what makes sense to us, by our own reason. Faith is when you trust someone more than you trust your own assessment of the situation. Faith is when you say, this doesn't make sense to me. I want to go that way. But I trust your judgment better than my own, so I will follow you that way. We often trust God only as far as we trust ourselves and no further. And when he says, I know you don't understand, you don't have to. Just trust me. We get really nervous. And it's then that we wander from his path. We say things like, why wouldn't God want me to be with someone I love? Is God against love? 
Why would God want me to endure pain? Why would God call me to something I wouldn't wish upon my own child? And at those moments, we can either reject God or we can refuse to believe that he would ever ask something of us that we don't want to do, which of course is to reject God. Or we can hold on and trust him. This is what the Bible means when it says we walk by faith, not by sight. It means not just doing what makes sense, not not judging reality by what we see and think. It means trusting God when all hope seems lost and he says it isn't. In fact, I think that's exactly why a psalm written about Rehoboam might have been so helpful during the exile. Even when Shishak subdued Rehoboam, even when the ten tribes were taken from the north, even then David's throne continued. David's descendants continued to occupy the throne. Even when they thought that all the descendants had been killed, they found out that God had hidden a young boy And then he restored that throne again. History had shown that when God's people lost hope, when they could see no way forward, God knew exactly what he was doing. When no descendant of David was sitting on the throne and the people of God were enslaved and all hope seemed lost, when they were in exile under the the thumb of Babylon, What better psalm could they read than this one? To hear those same cries on the lips of others, to hear their doubts and worries and concerns, to see their struggles and confusion, and remember that in the past things weren't always what they seemed. This would have been a perfect psalm to read, to remember that God is often doing what we can't see. Walking by faith means understanding that things will often appear to be the exact opposite of what they really are. And so the people of Israel came to expect a restoration of David's throne That's what they were looking for in the Messiah. And the disciples thought they had it in Jesus. But then everything went sideways. He was arrested, crucified, dead, and buried. And as they sat there on Saturday morning, What would have been a good psalm for them to read and meditate on? I can think of no better psalm than Psalm 89. It's a psalm for Saturday mornings. It's a psalm for weak and confused faith. It's a psalm for dark hours. 
because it reminds us that this is how God has worked before. This is how God has always worked. He's always kept his promises, but seldom, (laughs) if ever, in the way we expect. It's a reminder that apparent defeat always precedes victory. Death always precedes restoration. It reminds us that people have always been tempted to despair prior to God revealing the ultimate solution. And that means that not even death of the long-awaited Messiah could keep God from keeping his promises. The disciples' senses told them that everything was over, that all was lost. Faith would say, this is just the beginning. The word of God would have told them, taught them to expect apparent failure before victory. And so just a few days later, the disciples were walking a nearby road and Jesus, now risen from the dead, walks up alongside of them. But their senses once again fail to tell them what's really going on and they don't recognize him. And they were sad. And Jesus asked them what's going on. And they said, we had hoped that that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. But now he's dead. And we're tempted to expect, you know, Jesus in the cardigan sweater that we expect him to be wearing to put his arm around them and say something gentle like, it's okay, it's me, I'm alive. But instead, we're told he rebukes them. Oh, foolish ones, possibly fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Not only does this mean that God hasn't failed, but that they should have expected the cross and the grave. Everything was there in the scriptures. If they would believe them, if they would accept them, if they would trust them, they wouldn't have been surprised. They would not be shaken. They would not be enslaved to their senses and their ideas, their notions of what is possible. Had they opened up Psalm 89 that Saturday morning, they might have noticed that this heavy and painful and confused psalm begins and ends with praise. And maybe they would have understood that even the darkest hours must give way to the God of light and life. That God can deliver a life from the grave that God always keeps his promises. Faith teaches the heart to see past what the eyes can see. And it gives a perspective that understands that things will often appear to be the exact opposite of what they really are. Faith doesn't remove the pain. 
It gives context and hope in the midst of the pain. Faith praises God for things it can't yet see but knows must come. Have you ever thought it curious that the church uses the language of celebrating the Lord's Supper? After all, the Lord's Supper is a commemoration of our, of our Lord's death. Why would you celebrate it? Are we celebrating defeat? Well, it's not rejoicing in the death, and it's not rejoicing in an irreverent way. Rather, it's rejoicing that God keeps his promises. That, that his death and his defeat was the necessary step to accomplish our salvation. It's rejoicing that, that not even death could, could, could stop his kingdom. That not even death could defeat his promises. And so a Saturday morning psalm will will prepare God's people for a Sunday morning resurrection. Because it teaches us to see with faith, not with our eyes. It calls us to draw near and rejoice in what the Father did. That he did not spare his own son. That he allowed him to be buried in the grave but raised him on the third day in accordance with the scriptures that he might keep all his promises to David and to his people. And so let us, with with thankful hearts, come and draw near and celebrate with reverence and awe. And please pray with me. Father, You know our hearts. You know we often trust our senses more than we trust your word, more than we trust you. That we tell you what is possible more often than we ask. Forgive us and be patient with us and remind us again and again of your glorious truth that things are often the exact opposite of how they appear and that you have never once, never once failed to keep a promise. That your word is powerful enough to call things into existence that never were, to call the dead to life, to assure us of the future. Father, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.